This is Anne-Marie Lewis, and you are listening to We Are Rivers, a podcast series brought to you by American Rivers. In this episode, we are going to talk about a topic that is near and dear to me, the health of urban rivers. In this podcast series, we've talked a lot about the health of wild and free-flowing rivers and river stretches, but equally important is the health of urban rivers. By neglecting urban river health, the majority of the U.S. populace loses their potential connection to rivers. Furthermore, urban river degradation ties into our country's history of environmental racism and oppression, and this is extremely important to understand and to shed light to. Inversely, urban river health ties into communal well-being and social justice. Tune into this episode of We Are Rivers to learn about how environmentalism and social advocacy meet in urban river restoration, and about how people who live near degraded rivers often don't even think of urban rivers as rivers. There's very often this tendency to write them off. They, you know, they're they're either buried underground or they're so blighted and and compromised that they couldn't possibly be restored. But in fact, really, it doesn't take that much. Most of the work is in organizing the the right partners and constituencies to be able to leverage the resources that are often already there to restore the river. This is Jenny Hoffner. Jenny Hoffner serves as Vice President for Conservation Strategies, leading American Rivers conservation practice work to protect wild rivers, restore damaged rivers, and conserve clean water for people and nature. Jenny served as chair of the recently chartered American Rivers Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee and works with historically marginalized communities in Atlanta, Georgia, to address climate and water management challenges by advancing resilient, equitable, integrated infrastructure. She is also a co-founder of the Bronx River Alliance. And the Bronx River Alliance serves as a coordinated voice for the river and works in harmonious partnership to protect, improve, and restore the Bronx River corridor so that it can be a healthy ecological, recreational, educational, and economic resource for the communities through which this river flows. But since urban dwellers often view their degraded rivers as nothing more than dirty sewage pipelines, how do environmental leaders like Jenny work with urban communities to re-envision the potential of their degraded rivers? Over 80% of people in the U.S. live in cities. And many of us don't have the resources to head out and raft or hike or fish a wild river. So healthy urban rivers provide healthy spaces for all people in the city to enjoy. And they provide places for outside play and recreation, for connecting to nature. And before people can advocate for a river or be part of a movement to protect rivers, they first have to fall in love with a river. And because so many people live in cities and so many people stay in cities, uh, having healthy rivers in cities is a big part of how we ensure that rivers are cared for overall. The accessibility of rivers for a wide range of people is directly related to those rivers' health. So, you know, if a river is considered toxic in any way, it, it impacts the way people see not just the river in their communities, but also just in, in general. 
This is Majora Carter, an urban revitalization strategist from the South Bronx of New York City. Carter founded and led the nonprofit Environmental Justice Solutions Corporation, Sustainable South Bronx, from 2001 to 2008. Carter was also a co-founder of the Bronx River Alliance. When you build things like pocket parks you know, within these, these smaller areas, you know, that's not like the wide open spaces of a national park, what you're actually creating is an appreciation for those wild natural spaces that actually those are those places where, you know, we want to, you know, maintain them, you know, for larger, you know, biodiversity and, and ecological reasons because, you know, they're, they're carbon sinks. There's all sorts of things, you know, just in terms of climate change and all that good stuff. But we have to teach people where they are to care about the environment. So it's almost like looking at these communities as, as places where you can harbor that kind of appreciation for the environment. So when you, whether or not you ever go and visit one of those places, but if you appreciate what the actual value that they bring to your community, then you can appreciate what it brings to the larger world. The process of restoring an urban river is certainly complex. So the, the process of restoring an urban river is multifold, but certainly you have to have a, a community or a group of people within that community, you know, to decide to adopt that particular area. So that's what makes it a candidate for restoration. That organized constituency of local residents and beyond who care about the health of that place and are able to engage in the long-term stewardship is a critical piece to urban river restoration. And so the degree to which the local community decides to really dive in is all about like, how much they want to see this, this river and this portion of the river sort of tied up to their community's well-being. What is absolutely essential in getting a community to rally around the restoration of a river is to get them to re-envision a dirty, garbage-filled river as a place that has potential for beauty, play, and communal vibrancy. This process was amazingly put forth in the restoration of the Bronx River. In the late 1990s, the Bronx River was considered an open sewer, especially after a rainy because tons of combined sewage outfalls all along the river, because that's the way that the sewage system was constructed, you know, 100 or so years ago. It just all flowed back into the river. The Bronx River was a river that was cut off from its communities. It was lined in the southern parts with industry, and in some neighborhoods, they hadn't had access to it in over 60 years. No one really thought we had a river, certainly worth protecting. There was a parkway that was named after it, and you, know, you saw it on a subway map, but you didn't really think that this was like a river, like the way that you would see it in the movies or on television shows or anything like that. So that's what we were dealing with, but we knew that there wasn't a single solitary environmental community resource, anything like it, literally, in New York City. So we were like, this is an amazing resource, and though it's been, it had been, you know, artificially straightened, you know, to make way for a, a roadway, all sorts of crazy things happened to it. We were like, this is, as far as we were concerned, the beginning of our community's 
transformation and using the, the river as a way to do it, not just environmentally, but educationally, um, you know, economically, to really just build community. Jenny and Majora worked together to garner the community support to restore the Bronx River. Jenny and Majora started working together in 1998, and they worked to unite the Bronx community so that they could restore the river. And we all came together, in particular with Jenny Hoffner, who at the time was working with the New York City Department of Parks. And I, at that time, wore two hats. I was working both for the Parks Department of New York City and the City Parks Foundation. We started working back in 1997, I think was literally the first time that I actually saw the river and thought that it could be the, the real beginning of our community's uh, restoration with regard to environmental uh, rejuvenation. And my role was to be the coordinator of the Bronx River Working Group, which was a voluntary group of schools, businesses, government agencies, and community groups that were all coming together in order to restore the river. And so we were all, you know, as part of her, um, you know, larger scheme to make this happen. And it just turned out that by building those relationships, and even some of us didn't necessarily, um, you know, agree with everything others were doing, uh, what bonded us was the restoration of the river. So it really became this labor of love, and there were neighborhoods all up along the eight miles that, that connected you know, through, throughout the Bronx. After Majora helped rally her South Bronx community, and others like her helped rally their communities too, together they all stood in solidarity with hopes to revive a broken river. Jenny mentioned that the Bronx River was once considered nothing more than a glorified sewer. And so sowing a new narrative for the river with a holistic and upbeat vision was essential for rallying the Bronx community. We move forward with essentially sort of a three-part approach. One was to really engage the imagination of the people uh, who lived along the river. And we did that by hosting events like the Bronx River Golden Ball, where we floated a 36-inch golden orb down the full length of the Bronx River. Uh, And each of the communities along the river hosted an event to welcome the ball. And and this had the result of connecting all the communities together uh, in this one event, but also recognizing that the river was that link between them uh, as this ball went from community to community to celebrate their community and the river. And each of the communities celebrated it differently in different ways, uh, which was also part of the the beauty of it, that they all interpreted uh, the event and the ball differently. The second was developing a coordinated voice with all these different groups. And when you're in a city, it's really important to get a diverse group of stakeholders together that can all speak with one voice. And that is not an easy thing to do, but if they can come up with a common vision and and speak with one voice and agree to work on what they agree on and agree to work separately on what they don't agree on. Uh, That is a formula for success. It's a way of leveraging a lot of resources too because government agencies and elected officials are looking for opportunities to invest in projects like these urban river restoration projects. And if you can satisfy a number of constituencies at the same time, 
um, by having that common vision, it can be much more successful. You can be much more successful at securing the resources. So that's another piece of it is convening and cultivating that constituency and having that common vision and common voice. And lastly, it was about putting together um, a dynamic structure that would ensure stewardship for the long haul. And that's really what led to what is happening on the uh, on the Bronx River right now. There's, we went from you know a working group of just concerned people to now there's actually an advocacy organization that whose sole purpose is to restore the Bronx River and to continue doing it and to manage it. And that alliance is set up to have community leadership on the board in perpetuity, and they've been able to create a lot of a lot more parks and restore the health of the river. So that was 20 years ago, and you know we can all look back on it and be very proud of what we started. And and that's that's you know what we were doing on the Bronx River. It's also now what we're doing on the Flint River here in Atlanta. In this podcast, it would be wrong to not acknowledge an important topic that is intimately connected to urban rivers, the intergenerational consequences of racism and how it ties into environmental injustice. The communities that have historically and systematically been disinvested in often have the degraded rivers. The historic and systematic disinvestment in low wealth and communities of color and urban rivers are often tied together. I think that many rivers grew up as pathways for trade and then industry, uh, and as industries and cities used rivers as open sewers, literally. Uh, the more affluent people, the people who had means, moved to higher ground. Given the history of racial inequity in our country, the people who remain near the rivers you know, were communities of color, were low-wealth communities, people who may not have had other options to move away. It is an unfortunate reality that environmental inequality in our country is a is a fact of life. I mean the the poorer and or darker an area is, the more likely it is to have environmental burdens placed there. And um so we know that it absolutely does in fact correlate with uh, urban river uh, degradation in addition to every other type of environmental burden that's out there. And turning our attention to rivers in cities, degraded rivers that need to be restored, uh, is part and parcel of turning our attention and and engaging with communities that have historically been disinvested in or ignored and the rivers can be part of the solution for those communities. The river can play a role in restoring the health and vitality of those communities for the people who currently live there. And and so I don't I know that um, some people would say you know either you need to focus on social issues or you need to focus on environmental issues. And I think in this particular instance, and in many, you have a multifaceted set of challenges, and they need to be addressed in the same place at the same time. 
But in the age of mass gentrification, cleaning up historically marginalized areas can lead to property taxes increasing and the wealthy buying up areas that those who work to clean them up can no longer afford, which is unfair when considering that those institutionally oppressed who have cleaned up their community from within inarguably deserve to keep their homes and places of residence, especially because degraded land and environmental sacrifice zones are so often placed on low-income communities. What happens when you suddenly have uh, the stormwater managed and a lot of green park space and trees into communities that have historically not had infrastructure or good infrastructure investment. Very often there's gentrification that goes along with it. And as we're working with communities and identifying ways to solve the issues that they have of uh, lack of living wage jobs and affordable housing and, and urban flooding and combined sewer overflows, how do we do that in a way that does not make them instruments of their own displacement? How do we find a way that they can experience the benefits of the restored river? And so that's a lot of what we've been grappling with in our work and the conversations we've been having with communities that we work with. Ensuring that these communities benefit is key. And revitalizing marginalized communities is vital for these communities because it helps prevent what Majora calls brain drain, which her real estate firm, Majora Carter Group, is actively working to prevent. And when Majora refers to we in this next clip, she is talking about her firm. If you think about gentrification and real estate development is a driver behind it, how does gentrification actually happen? Gentrification starts to happen when we tell people in our communities that there is no real value there. When we teach the young people in those communities that we need to measure success by how far we get away from those communities, that's when gentrification happens because it sort of paves the way for the predatory speculators, the ones who buy property off of folks within those communities for cheap, and the government programs that support that. What do they? What does it mean for the people that are left behind? Those people are vulnerable. So our approach to this problem is, number one, to help people in our own community see value in it before anybody else does. You know, and the piece that we originally worked on was the Bronx River. How do we get people to see that we have beauty and value in our own community, i.e. in this river? And how could it work for our benefit? And now we've sort of taken that to another level in terms of real estate development and economic development. What are people in our communities, the ones who are taught that there really isn't any real value here, you know, in terms of their quality of life? You know, yeah, we've got great parks there, but not much else. You know, we don't have the housing that they're looking for, especially when they do actually take advantage of great educational programs and they're doing well for themselves, they're making money and they've got great jobs. You know, there's no housing for them because no one's building housing that actually matches their income. You know, are there great stores and, and bars and coffee shops that people want to be a part of? You know, no. So that's the kind of work that we're working on and building that into our own community so that the people who normally could afford to leave our community because they're looking for a quality of life that's better for them, they see the same quality of life that's actually in their own community. And so they decide that they want to say, what we're doing is trying to reduce brain drain. 
in our communities because we lose the best and the brightest in our communities to other communities, and then it leaves those communities open for the perils of gentrification and displacement because if people you know, sell their property because they think there's no real value in it or they leave the neighborhood because they think there's nothing there that meets their quality of life. But the way that we're talking about reducing brain drain and in, in actually encouraging the people that are born and raised in this community, the ones that were taught to measure success by how far they get away from those neighborhoods, what we're saying to them is, no, we can build these type of things in our own community so that you can be a part of the aspiration and the education um, within our own communities and the reinvestment that's actually going to help our communities thrive. We consider that talent retention. You know, it, it is kind of like putting oysters back into a struggling river when you think about it that way. They're not the biggest part of the ecosystem, but they provide a really crucial service by helping to clean the waterways. These conversations we all need to actively have and be true to. Otherwise, environmental injustice goes unquestioned. And our action cannot be passive. It also needs to transcend beyond our conversations and podcasts. Because who do we want to be when all is said and done? I, for one, refuse to live a passive life with only verbal attention. And I hope you refuse that lifestyle too. Since Jenny's work on the Bronx River, she, along with her partner in crime, Ben Emanuel, have formed close partnerships with organizations, including the Atlanta Regional Commission and the Conservation Fund, to help ensure the health of more rivers. Of note, they have also launched a new campaign on the Flint River, a 344-mile-long river in Georgia that originates on the south side of Atlanta and flows to the southwestern corner of the state to join with the Chattahoochee River to form the Apalachicola and continues flowing into the Gulf of Mexico. The Flint River is another great example of an urban river with a lot of challenges. Uh, The challenge, though, with this urban river is slightly different. The Flint River is a river running dry. And there aren't that many rivers in the east that are periodically just completely running out of water. And this is happening on the Flint and even pretty mild droughts. And when we looked at it, we were able to determine that really this is not an issue, a single issue that is causing the lack of water in the river. It's really a death by a thousand cuts. There's issues of urbanization in the headwaters. There's climate change as we're having more and more frequent droughts and more intense droughts where we see a lot of water withdrawals by water utilities in the upper sections of the river without the comparable returns of wastewater to the river. Uh, So all of these and many others pile on each other and then result in the river running dry. Part of the problem that we saw was that there weren't a lot of people who were even aware that the river was there as is the case with many urban rivers. And so we set out to bring together uh, some of the key constituents, among them many of the water utilities that rely on the river for their supply chain. They count on the river having water in it so that they can provide water to their customers. So we started there, and over the years we've convened them and and are making uh, strides towards 
identifying ways in which they can change their operations in order to ensure that there's water in the river. The other piece of that is engaging the institutions and communities in the headwaters of the river that is highly urbanized. The Flint River is an unusual river because the headwaters are urbanized, and then as the river runs south, it becomes more scenic and rural. Many rivers start as rural and undeveloped, and then they make their ways as they get bigger to cities, and this is the reverse. The headwaters of the Flint River are actually under the Atlanta International Airport. The busiest airport in the world sits on top of the headwaters. And then there are communities that surround the airport that also embody sort of that watershed. And very few of them, if any, uh, were aware that the Flint River was there. So our first step was really to create a narrative around the river and engage people's imagination around the river. And we did that through uh, partnering with the Conservation Fund and the Atlanta Regional Commission to create a vision for the river called Finding the Flint. And Finding the Flint is an effort to really restore the headwaters of the Flint River while at the same time that we're restoring the communities around the airport. And if you know anything about the airport, it's grown up over the years and just sort of consumed communities as it grew and, and just sort of raised whole how, you know, housing, communities, everything were just obliterated in its path. And uh, at this moment, as people are starting to return to the city, there's an effort to ensure that the redevelopment is done equitably, and what we want to do is also make sure that the river is part of that and can serve as part of the way in which there's a sense of place and that there's a groundedness to the redevelopment that's happening. After creating that vision, Jenny, Ben, and the core team helped create the Finding the Flint working group, consisting of the Atlanta Airport, Delta, and other institutions in the neighborhood as well as community groups and community leaders. And we've now been meeting with them for about a year and a half to develop headwaters development principles and, and then identify projects that we can move forward and then to work to get the Flint River into all of the various different plans that are in the works in the area. In Atlanta, American Rivers has also been partnering with Environmental Community Action to host Atlanta Watershed Learning Network trainings. Where local residents come, they learn about what a watershed is, they learn about their watershed, and they learn how to be advocates for their community, for their river, and learn about the opportunities for advocating. And in that way, we're growing a cohort in each of these watersheds of of people who can engage in the decision-making. Thank you for listening to We Are Rivers, a podcast series brought to you by American Rivers. Tune into our next episode to continue the conversations around river conservation. And if you learned something in this piece or enjoyed the series, please rate and comment. This helps others discover our podcast series too, and we appreciate your support. Thank you.